This is exactly uh, what you want in a hero. Uh, the brains and the brawn together. Right? That, that's exactly what you want in a hero story. And believe it or not, this is actually what Genesis 1 uh, and, and Genesis 2 in particular are, are actually about. But really, the whole Genesis story is about the brains and the brawn together in our magnificent hero. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you as... Uh, uh, I hope we'll see today, we, we, we thank you that you've given us a hero, that you've given us someone to believe in, someone to win the day. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. We are, uh, we are fascinated by origin stories. Uh, multiple times a year, uh, my family will head up to Michigan and on uh, a couple of those trips a year, we will usually kind of show our kids our origins. Um, we'll, we'll drive over uh, to Lansing, uh, Michigan, and we'll show the kids the first house that Cheryl and I lived in. Uh, every once in a while, we'll take them about 20 miles south of Lansing, and I'll show them my whole hometown. Uh, we'll, go to, we'll go over to Michigan State and show them kind of around uh, campus. We'll take them to our favorite places to eat and get, get treats. We introduce them to our origin story. Kids, this is where it all began. The legend of mommy and daddy. This is where it all began, right? They don't care, but... Um, and I know that I know certainly that we're we're not the only ones into this because uh, all over television you see these DNA tests uh, advertised where you can learn more about your origin story. You can learn about your heritage. You can even kind of get a heads up on uh, certain diseases that you might be prone to based on your DNA. It's all about origin story. And I have to believe a lot of people are in this just based on the superhero genre alone. Um, in, in almost every kind of superhero story, there is a moment or two of origin, and we are absolutely fascinated by it, I think. How did Batman become Batman? Right? How did Iron Man become Iron Man? How did the Joker become the Joker? How did Spider-Man become Spider-Man? And, and these movies, whether they're Marvel or DC, they sell so many tickets People have gotten filthy rich over this idea of origin. We're fascinated by the origin of things. And the book of Genesis, as we started out, uh, it, it is an origin story. So I kind of uh, have given you a heads up the last couple weeks, but January to Easter, we always consider that kind of one series, and it gives us an opportunity to delve a little bit deeper and into more detail on maybe a bigger and broader subject. And so over the next four years, January to Easter, uh, we're going to slowly kind of work our way through the book of Genesis. This year, uh, January to Easter, we're going to do Genesis 1 through 11. Next year, we're going to do Abraham, then Jacob, and then Joseph. And uh, in four years of Januarys to Easters, we'll have worked our way through the book of Genesis, and then I'll have to figure out what we're going to do from there. But uh, like I said, we, we love the idea of origins, and this Genesis 1 through 11 piece of this text is all about origin. And so in this series, we are going to see the origin of the world. We're gonna see the origin of sin. We're gonna see the origin of redemption. We're gonna see the world as God designed it to be, and it's gonna give us a glimpse of our future world in heaven. Uh, we're gonna see the world as it is, that this series is gonna give us a category for understanding sin and death and disease and, and hardship. And, and we're, we're gonna be challenged by that. This was not God's original intent, but he is working through the world as it is right now to bring about good. And we're gonna see God's design for relationships, human relationships and intimacy. We're gonna see all of those things, but I wanna be honest with you right up front. This is not really a story about any of those things. Uh, this story is, 
Not all, the story we're gonna tell in this series is not ultimately about people or relationships or sin nature or our future home in heaven. This story is not about the world and why things are the way they are. Uh, they're in the story, they're part of the story. We're gonna learn great amounts of things about these things in Genesis one through 11, but this story is not fully about any of those things. We learn what the story is all about in the very first verse of the text. And so today I'm doing something I don't think I've ever done before. We're gonna study one verse today. Not, I'm gonna bring in other verses, but for the most part, we're studying one verse and uh, it tells us in the very beginning of Genesis what the story is all about. And here it is on the screen. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a story primarily about God. And I think that if we don't understand this one thing as we start this series, it will cause us to misunderstand and misapply God's word. So, so for instance, some people think that this story is primarily about the earth and how the earth was created. And certainly that's in there. I just would say it's not primarily about that. But if you think it's primarily about that, what I've seen some Christian scholars do is they get all kinds of bent on how the world was created in seven literal days. And, and they get so belligerent about that because they think that's what this story is about. There's a part of Christianity that so holds to this. I heard one scholar say that if you don't believe in a seven literal day creation, he doesn't believe you can be a Christian. And when I read that, I was like, whoa. I understand why you're so passionate about it. It's not what the story is about. And when you think the story is about that, you start to misunderstand and misapply the text. In the other direction, on the flip side of this, you can, you can oftentimes, if you don't understand that God is the hero of the story, that the story is all about God, you will begin to think that earth is the hero of the story. And the world is the hero of the story. And that we need to serve the earth and, and keep the earth clean. And that's the most important part of the story. And listen, I want to be clear. Taking care of the earth is in the story. We're gonna see it, God commands human beings to take care of the earth. It's important, but it's not what the story is about. It's not what the story is about. Some people will think that this story is primarily about people and the origins of people. And listen, they're in the story, but it's not the most important thing. And we're gonna see that God loves people so much, he created them and he loves them and he desires to be in a relationship with them. But if you, begin, if you believe that humans are the primary part of the story, here's what can happen is you will fall into humanism. And humanism is a way of thought that puts human beings above all, including God. And you will begin to hear people say things like, I don't care what God commands, this is what I need. I don't care what God thinks, this is what I think. I don't care what God says, this is what I wanna do. And listen, he loves us very much, but this is not a story that he's primarily about human beings. This is a story about God. And when life becomes primarily about God, the role of people, the role of the earth, the role of all of this stuff comes into focus. So in this series, we're gonna see some things about God. In this series, we're gonna see God's creativity. Next week in particular, you're gonna see his creativity on display as he creates this thing called earth. Think about giraffes. God's creativity will be on display. Think about elephants. God's creativity is on display. Think about outer space, how big and expansive outer space is. God's creativity is on display. And there's one place where I think his creativity is especially on display that our family has been immersed in for six years, and it's the ocean. 
right? Uh, my son's just really into this. So I've learned more about deep sea creatures uh, than I ever thought I would learn in my life. But I want to show you this kind of one thing uh, from Sam's favorite fish. It's called the anglerfish. And this is from his National Geographic book. Here's what it says. Now there's a creature that might give you a fright. With its huge head and enormous mouth, this fearsome fish swam in the dark de- swims in the dark depths of the ocean. Ranging from about 20 centimeters to one meter in length, there are more than 300 species of anglerfish, uh, most of which are found in the Atlantic and the Antarctic oceans. So what makes this creature super strange? Well, the female has her own glowing light hanging above her mouth. The luminous flesh attracts unsuspecting prey close as they kind of look at the light and they come to the anglerfish's sharp see-through teeth and then chomp. Right, what an awesome creature. Little lure, you know, right out front there. All the fish are like, light, 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 and and swim right into it, and chomp, you're gone, right? So we're gonna see God's creativity on display in in Genesis 1 and 2 in particular. We're gonna see God's desire. We're gonna see God's desire for mankind. Let me show you this. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit uh, with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. That at the very beginning of the story, God is giving good gifts to his children. And God is being generous with his children. But the greatest gift God gives his children is the gift of himself. Because we learn in the story later on that God had a habit in the garden that he creates that we'll talk about later. God had a habit of walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine? They're they're living in this garden and God just kind of comes strolling through because he loves and wants to interact with his creation. And even after sin enters the picture, God is still achieving this goal. He's still guiding his people. He's still directing his people. He's still commanding his people. He's still helping his people because God's desire is to be in relationship with his people. And so you'll see that in the story. You'll see God's desire for his people um, in in the story. And I I think one of the greatest things that we can kind of ask God for as we start this new year is, God, would you give me a greater desire to know you more? Because I can tell you, God desires it. God desires to be in a relationship with you. And so, man, if we ask God, God, I want to have a greater desire for you. I know it's what you want. It's what I want for me. Help me to know you better. Help me to worship you more. Help me to obey you more fully. And so we'll see God's desire in the story. We'll see God's love. Talked about this before. It's just a pet peeve of mine, so I feel like I mention it maybe more than I should. But it is a pet peeve of mine that sometimes when people are talking about God, They'll describe like the God of the Old Testament as like super grumpy. And then in the New Testament with Jesus, all of a sudden God got like happy, right? And, uh, you, you know, and his, his character kind of changes. And listen, in both the Old and the New Testaments, you see glimpses of God's wrath and God's judgment. And in both the Old and the New Testaments, you see glimpses of God's love, mercy, and grace. So in the book of Genesis, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so 12 chapters in to the book of Genesis, 
we see again God's desire to bring about blessing to the entire world. And you think about the anxiety. We just kind of came out of this season. The anxiety you feel trying to figure out how to bless one person with a Christmas gift right? It is stressful. Like, how am I going to bring about blessing to this person that I love? You know, sweater, iPod, you know, movie, book. How am I going to bless this person? And way back, way back at the very beginning of the world, God had initiated a plan to bring about blessing to everybody. And we find out, because we get to read the book in reverse, We find out much later, there's no way Abraham understood this, but we understand now that that blessing that came through the line of Abraham, that blessing was ultimately found in Jesus, and Jesus did indeed bring blessing to the entire world. So long story short, here's really what we're gonna see. We're gonna see his creativity, we're gonna see his love, we're gonna see his desire, but here's what we're gonna see most of all. In Genesis 1 through 11, we're gonna discover who the hero of the story is. We're gonna discover who the hero of the story really is because like I said, God did, uh, in, in Genesis one and two, we are gonna see that God does create a garden and it's the most perfect, beautiful garden uh, on the face of the earth. I think other than Revelation, it's one of the texts that gives us a glimpse of our future home. You kind of see God's uh, ultimate desire for his creation in the world that he creates. And so God creates this garden and it is a perfect place. I don't know if you've ever thought uh, about what a perfect place looks like. I I know, I think this changes as you age a little bit. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I saw Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. And I was like, there is no more perfect place on the face of the earth than that chocolate factory. Chocolate waterfall, gummy bears, all all this stuff. And then as I got older, in my young adult years, one year, um, Michigan State won the basketball national championship. And I watched it on TV. And I remember, man, I remember thinking, that's got to be the most perfect place in the world to be right now, watching them win the national championship. Years later, I would meet Cheryl, and I found out she was there, um, uh, you know, for, for the national championship. Uh, and now, now, as I've gotten a little bit older, it's like time with my family. Maybe at the lake, it doesn't have to be there, but it's just perfect. So what makes this garden that God creates so perfect? Well, uh, the residents there are perfect. Uh, Adam and Eve have, uh, uh, early on in the story, Adam and Eve had never sinned. It's to think about how sin has affected our relationships. Their relationships with each other were, were, were perfect. The world was perfect. I don't think any of us fully understands the impact sin has had on our world. And so, but before Genesis 3, and I know it only lasts for two chapters, but before Genesis 3, sin had not affected the human world at all, but their relationship with God was perfect as well. Man's interacting with God, knowing him, worship, worshiping him, and sin is going to find its way in Genesis 3 into the story. We're going to see this in a couple weeks. Sin find its way, finds its way into the story. The first man and the first woman are going to sin. They're going to mess up. They're going to stray from God's plan. And in the middle of that story, God is going to say something to the tempter, to Satan, who led Adam and Eve away from God's plan. And I want to show you kind of as a teaser what God says, because this, this goes to how much we need our hero. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God gives this wink and a nod. 
And he says, sin has interrupted my perfect plan. Sin has interrupted this garden. But there is a savior coming. There is a savior coming who is going to crush the head of the serpent and is going to defeat death and sin forever. And people throughout the Old Testament, I think people were constantly wondering, who is the savior going to be? What is the savior going to look like? And throughout the story, we find ourselves even wondering sometimes, like in one part of the story, will it be Abraham? Right, when Abraham gets introduced, will it be Abraham? Is he the savior? Let me tell you about Abraham. Abraham was living a fairly quiet life. And God comes in and interrupts his life and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father, your mother. I want you to leave your whole family's household, and I want you to go. God, where do you want me to go? Start walking, and I'll tell you when you get there. Right? And so Abraham kind of starts walking. He's obedient in kind of a small way. He starts walking, and eventually Abraham goes, and he starts a family. And we find out later that that family will become the nation of Israel. And as Abraham's story unfolds, I picture people thinking to themselves, is Abraham the savior? Is he the one that God talked about that's gonna come and crush the serpent's head? Is Abraham the savior? Well, if Abraham is the savior, let's just say he's a flawed savior, right? We, we find out later that Abraham didn't actually fully obey God. God said, leave your, your, leave your entire household and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham brings along his nephew, Lot, which ends up being a train wreck, all right? So he doesn't fully obey. We find out later that he repeatedly uh, lies uh, about an issue regarding his wife, and he lives to a ripe old age. But the, by the time his death comes around, it is pretty obvious. Abraham's not the savior. And then years later, it was a, a, a Moses kind of rises up, and it's like, is it Moses? Is Moses the one who is going to stomp on the serpent's head? And let me tell you a little bit about Moses. God's people, by the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, God's people end up in slavery. And they end up under a very harsh Pharaoh. And God decides at some point that he has enough of this. He's going to free his people. And of all the people in the world, the person God chooses to release his people from slavery is a man named Moses. Moses is the man. And I can't help but wonder if as God's people are in slavery and they're watching kind of Moses ascend uh, to, to, to the position that he was in, if they're thinking to themselves, is he the one? Abraham wasn't the one. Is he the one? Is he the one that's gonna stomp the serpent's head? And let me tell you about something about Moses. If he's the savior, he's a flawed savior. Right? Or, uh, later on in the story, Moses will murder an Egyptian who was mistreating an Israelite slave. He was known for having a bad temper. He was at times afraid, scared, disengaged. He gave, he gave up quickly. He wanted to give up quickly. And there comes a time when Moses becomes, the Bible has a nice way of saying it, well advanced in years. Right? Well advanced in years. And there comes a time where he passes away. And it's obvious. Moses is not the savior. And then years later, it becomes, will it be David? The nation of Israel gets established. And let me tell you something about David. He was the second king of Israel. The first king was kind of a train wreck. And David is set up to be received as an incredible king. He was so loved. And as David kind of comes into the kingship and is so successful in so many ways, I can't help but wonder if people are like, is David the guy? It wasn't Abraham. It wasn't Moses. Is it David? Is he the one that God is raising up that is going to stomp the head of the serpent? And let me tell you something about David. If he's the savior, he is a flawed savior. 
right? Because David gets older. He ends up having an affair. He kills the woman's husband. It is a mess. Later on, David gets well advanced in years, um, and he passes away, and it becomes obvious. David is not the Savior And we could go on and on and on. And here's the amazing thing about this story called the Bible. The very first line of the story tells us who the hero of the story is going to be. Who the savior of the story is going to be. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is the hero. God is the savior. God is the one who makes the difference, and he is perfectly equipped to do so. Consider his character, that he is perfect, he is graceful, he is holy, he is righteous, he always does the right thing and makes the right decision. Consider his plan. We're told in the New Testament that before the creation of the world, God knew the plan he was gonna put in place to save human beings. So God is always one step ahead of his enemies. He frustrates them. He thwarts them. He is always, uh, God is playing chess. Everybody else is playing checkers, right? God knows exactly where he's going and what he's going to do. Consider his power. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is all-powerful. He cannot be defeated. And just at the time that Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus comes onto the scene, and at some point, uh, he is murdered and put into a tomb, and everyone's like, oh, we thought he was the savior. We thought he was the king. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb proving that he was. And he comes, and he defeats death. He defeats disease. He defeats all of that stuff, and he declares himself the hero of the story, which he has been from the beginning. And let me tell you why this is so important. When you understand that God is the hero of the story, exemplified in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the hero of the story, here's what will begin to happen. You will begin to see Jesus on every page of the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. You will ultimately see him as the hero of your story. And here's the mistake that we Americans make, all right? So this is kind of uniquely to America. So we have to address it here because it's a uniquely American problem. If you don't begin to see God as the hero of the story, what we as Americans like to do is we will make ourselves the hero of the story, right? And we will begin to see ourselves as the hero. Consider the story of Moses, Moses is called by God, as I said, to rescue and redeem his people. If you don't understand that Jesus is the hero of the story, you will begin to see yourself in the Moses role, that you need to rescue and redeem yourself. You need to be the leader to lead yourself out of slavery. But when you understand that Jesus is the hero, you will begin to see Jesus as the new and better Moses who left heaven and came to earth and leads us out of our slavery into new life. But if you don't understand he's the hero, you will assume that you are Moses. You are not Moses. Jesus is Moses. And he leaves heaven and he comes to earth and he says, I will lead you out of your slavery into into a better new land that I've been promising you for all of all mankind. Consider the story of Abraham. There's a story in Abraham, uh, in the story of Abraham, where God wants to test Abraham's faith. And he tells him to sacrifice his son. 
And at the last minute, God stops Abraham from doing it. It was, all, uh, it was all kind of a test. And if you don't understand that Jesus is the hero of the story, that God is the hero of the story, you will see yourself as the Abraham figure. Uh, the Abraham figure who needs to remain faithful, and that is not all wrong. That, that is one kind of fair application. But when you understand that God is the hero, that Jesus is this hero, you will see God the Father as the new and better Abraham and Jesus as the willing Isaac who lays down his life willingly for his people. You will begin to see Jesus on every page. Consider the story of David. There's a story in the life of David where he ends up fighting a giant and defeating a giant named Goliath. And if you don't understand that Jesus is the hero of the story, you will begin to see yourself in David's role, that I gotta defeat the giants in my life, I gotta fight my enemies, I gotta be the king that everyone needs me to be. But when you understand that Jesus is the hero of the story, you will see him as our good and perfect king who conquers the giants on our behalf in order to ultimately redeem us. We will begin to see Jesus on every page. He is the hero of the story. He rescues, he redeems, he saves, he makes the difference, he leads us to new life. And it's not wrong to make some applications about Moses to your life. It's not wrong to make some applications about David. We do that in here all the time. It's not wrong, but we need to understand that ultimately the story is about Jesus. And I want us to see him as our new and better Abraham who gave up his life willingly. He's the new and better Isaac who gave up his life willingly for our salvation. I want us to see him as our Moses, our new and better Moses, who is leading us to the promised land, out of a land of slavery. And I want, him to, I want us to see him as we read the Old Testament as our new and better David, our perfect king, who is lovingly and willingly guiding us and commanding us and helping us. I want us to see Jesus on every page because he is the hero of the story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our hero. And uh, I pray that we would see him on each and every page. We would see him guiding us. We would see him directing us. We would see him commanding us. We would see him as the hero that we all desperately need. Help us to understand in the book of Genesis, this will be well established, that we are loved, that we are cared for, that we are saved, that we are redeemed, that we are led, but that ultimately this story is not about us. This is a story about our hero. This is a story about Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.